Welcome to Empower Humans. Welcome again to the Empower Humans podcast. This is episode 114 with Dr. Glenn Livingston. Man, this guy's got all kinds of interesting uh, priceless gems uh, regarding binging, especially as it relates to eating, but that can apply to other things, drinking and drugs and sex and all these things that people might tend to do that with. I don't want any shame attached to any of this for anybody. Uh, I just want... Uh, mostly a message of hope to come across. He's got uh, a long story, and he told me before the podcast, I tend to go a little long-winded, so interrupt me. I try not to interrupt him too much, but he had a good long story that I think a lot of components, a lot of us can relate to in some capacity. Uh, Of course, details being a little bit different for each of us. Uh, Let's jump into the interview here in a minute, but I also want to remind you up front, you are absolutely priceless, and you're never alone. Don't let anyone convince you of anything other than that, including yourself. Don't convince yourself. Don't lie to yourself because if you do convince yourself of this, you're embracing a lie and it's just simply not true. You're above the monetary systems of this world. Like I always say, the riches are found in you and you are never alone, especially, especially at times that you're suffering, which many, many of us are in some way uh, right now. And, and we don't need to compete about who's going through what. Uh, because we can all honor each other's uh, difficulties and pain equally. And hopefully this all brings us to a greater place. If you listen to this in five years or <laughs> what I always say five years, but whenever, uh, hopefully this virus thing has resolved itself. But that's that's when we're, be, we're, we're recording this. This virus thing is affecting the world in a lot of ways. There's still a lot of unknowns and we're not quite sure what's going to happen. But reach out, reach out for help to friends, family, neighbors, coworkers, uh, whatever it is. People are have an inherent tendency and desire to want to help each other. And you can also reach out to me info at empowerhumans.com at empower 101 on Instagram and Twitter. And uh, real quick, our challenges study, keep studying, start studying, whatever you need to do to consistently stimulate your mind and continue to grow, learn, and just keep it sharp. That's what the, the study challenge is all about. Uh, so do that. Tons of opportunities and resources, especially in this day and age between the Internet and Google and YouTube. There's all kinds of you don't have to just watch cat videos playing piano, uh, but you can do that, too. Uh, and Netflix and all these other things. There's documentaries on Netflix. There's also violent movies on Netflix and everything in between. Uh, but aside from just video visual stimulation, uh, which you can also get from books uh, in another way of reading words on a page or on a screen, on a Kindle, uh, audiobooks, tons of those. I've been listening, actually, I've been listening to Russell Brunson's recent Traffic Secrets audiobook, uh, which so far is so good. Excellent work as usual, Russell. I know you're listening to the podcast, my friend. And uh, of course, along with study, make great moments. Uh, I always say that's with loved ones. I've enjoyed the simple things, going swimming. We have to go to a, a family friend's house. Actually, my great aunt Eleanor, who we've talked about in the podcast recently, she has a new home here with another family member, and we've gone to uh, go swimming at their house because our local community pool is still not open <laughs> thanks to this virus. And it's about 105 to 110 plus uh, each day here in July as we record this in Las Vegas. So we do need to get out and cool off in the pool once in a while. So we do that. Uh, it's about 20 minutes away, but not horrible. And it's not like we're riding a horse. So uh, we got air conditioning on the way to and from. Uh, so make great moments. Uh, I do Legos with my kids. If that's just sitting back for 20 minutes with your spouse or loved one or uh, call that person that you've been needing to call, listen to your gut. Sometimes your gut will tell you, hey, you need to call 
uh, this or that person just as a support mechanism because I think the universe in a lot of ways tells us those things, whether it's God, the universe, the spirit, your gut, whatever words you want to use, it's there and it's real. Listen to it. Uh, Make great moments, study, and of course, the last challenge, let's keep doing this podcast together. Share the podcast with your friends and family. Remember a couple weeks ago I said, go write a note, put it on their door. (laughs) <laughs> put a note on their car windshield, spray paint their car, powerhumans.com. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, but if you did that, I think it was funny, but I won't take responsibility if you do. I'm not really condoning that. But the notes are okay, uh, as long as it's not permanently uh, vandalizing someone's property. <laughs> Social media is probably the best way to do that text message. Hey, check out this podcast. Uh, so share the podcast. And uh, of course, I'm flattered and grateful that you spend time with me and Uh, I just can't say enough about Dr. Glenn Livingston here. Uh, He got a great story, like I said. Go to neverbingeagain.com, and there's a big red button. Uh, You can get a free copy of his book as well and a whole bunch of other tools uh, and and so on and so on. So uh, without further ado, my friends, let's jump right into our interview with Dr. Glenn Livingston. Here we go. We are so excited to welcome Glenn Livingston, Ph.D., Dr. Glenn Livingston, uh, author of uh, Never Binge Again and several other books. I think you said eight books, right, Glenn? I've got eight of them now, yeah. You don't mind if I call you Glenn because you are a doctor after all. I don't mind at all. (laughs) Dr. Livingston is my dad, so I I don't mind at all. Oh, is your dad a doctor too? Oh, I come from a family of 17 therapists and psychologists and (laughs) social workers. and Yeah. Wow. Everybody, everybody, um, something breaks in the house, everybody knows how to ask it, how it feels, but nobody knows how to fix it. <laughs> that's hilarious. <laughs> that's, that's the family I grew up in, yeah. <laughs> so it's in the blood, wow. That's it's in great. our blood, it sure is. That's exciting to have someone like you here. Uh, boy, so this must go back generations, this whole doctoring thing. Uh, my, my dad was the first one. Oh, really? Yeah, but before that, my family were um, rabbis and kind of like Lower East Side um, produce workers and things like that. But my, oh, wow. My dad was the first um, professional in the family, and everybody else saw how well he did with it, and I guess he kind of spread the word. And, um, you know, it's a good life. So it's a soulful, interesting life. You can pay the bills. You take care of people. You have a lot of interesting experiences. Um, did, it's did good. You, yeah, that's that's awesome, and I uh, I appreciate some of that history. Did, so did, where did you grow up? Because you're coming to us today from Florida. I live in different areas of the country, but most of my life I spent in and around New York City. Okay. I, I grew up in a little town called Great Neck on Long Island, and uh-huh. um, I lived in Syosset. And by the way, if you happen to pass a 7-Eleven in Syosset and they were out of pizza and Pop-Tarts, it's probably because I got there first. Let's <laughs> yeah. give you a little preview of what we might talk about later. Yeah, um, yeah so I, I live mostly there. And then I lived in New Hampshire for 14 years, starting in my late 30s, early 40s, because uh-huh. I loved to hike. And after I got divorced in 2016, I moved to Portland, Oregon. Oh, wow. And I lived there for a couple of years. And then I thought that the gloomy skies would be very angsty and make me write all the time. And I just found like it made me want to hit myself in the head with a spatula. I just couldn't stand it. <laughs> the, the, the people were great. I loved the people and the experiences, but I, I just couldn't stand the gloomy skies and the cool weather. And I wanted to get someplace warm. Yeah. And so now, now I've settled down and I'm in uh, Pompano Beach, Florida. Well done. Yeah. Well, it sounds like you've had quite a variety of uh, location experiences in terms of 
weather and uh, terrain and, and all that stuff. So now you alluded to this whole thing about the Pop-Tarts at 7-Elevens. Now, I haven't had occasion to to miss out on those at the local 7-Elevens, but I'm sure some people have given what you what you mentioned here. So tell me some of your story. We talk about binge again. Um, I think of binge, obviously, we all think of that word in terms of, of eating. Uh, but I guess it could be other things too, binge drinking and things like that. But what, what, tell me your story and what brought you to this place uh, as far as, you know, helping people who are afflicted with this, uh, yeah. call it a disease, it's an addiction. Addiction is a disease, but talk about it. Well, I actually have a different opinion, slightly different opinion. I don't, I don't think addiction is a disease. Okay. Um, uh, and I think that's more controversial than people know. Um, we can come back to that later. Okay. So it, it, the most important thing for you to know is that I'm not just a doctor who decided to work in weight loss or addiction. I'm someone who had a very serious problem myself. And I actually avoided working with eating disordered clients. I would refer them out to people that specialize in that because I felt like I didn't really conquer my own eating until my early 40s. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was around 17, I figured out that because I'm 6'4 and moderately muscular, if I, if I exercise for two or three hours a day, I could eat whatever I wanted to. <laughs> so usually it would start with chocolate, then it would progress to you know, a whole pizza or two, not, not a slice, but like a whole one. Um, you know, Pop-Tarts and Doritos and, um, you know, bags and boxes and containers and muffins and munchkins and, and anything that wasn't nailed down, I could get to during my binges. And, and in my early years, I didn't think it was a problem at all. I actually thought it was a really cool power that I had, um, you know, and I, I kind of made myself into a exercising, sleeping and pooping machine, right? That's that's basically what I what I did as a kid. But yeah. I was thin, and I was happy, and I really enjoyed eating. And I figured, so what? So I work out, so I can eat. What's the big deal? Mm-hmm. Problem is that when I was 22, my life changed completely. I got married, and I was now no longer living five minutes from school. I was going to graduate school, which was two hours away. Mm-hmm. And I'm driving two hours in each direction to take classes and see patients. Wow. And I'm helping my my wife at the time, and now my ex-wife, I was helping her to run her business. And um, I didn't have the time to work out. I was also getting a little older, so my metabolism was changing a little bit. And I found that the food had developed a life of its own, and I, I really couldn't stop. At least I felt like I couldn't stop. And this really bothered me, not so much because of the weight gain, which was just starting then, but it really bothered me because being a psychologist was always the most important thing to me. I, I mean, I joke about my family, but honestly, um, it's a very soul and purpose-driven life. And mm-hmm. in order to do it effectively, you have to be exquisitely present with your patients, your clients. It, it's, not an, it's not an intellectual endeavor. And there's part of it that there are things you need to know and put together for your clients, but it really, you have to lend them your soul. If you're really going to help someone, you know, they don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Yeah. And 
you just have to go through hell with them. You, you have to be there with them. And I was working with suicidal clients. I was working with uh, couples right after they discovered an affair. Mm. And I was in very high-risk situations where people were in crisis. And I did well with them. I don't want to mislead you. I, I, I worked really hard to compensate. So I'd read a lot of books and take a lot of notes. And I'd hire supervisors to go over things with and I did well. I had hundreds of couples that I worked with, only two of them got divorced, and I never lost on anyone to suicide. Um, mm -hmm. I, I did really well, but not as well as I could have. And I just wasn't present, and it bothered me. So given my psychological orientation towards life, I figured that if I'm trying to fill a hole in my stomach, maybe there's really a hole in my heart. Mm -hmm. And... So I went on this quest, which wound up taking me about 30 years, to figure out what that hole in my heart was. And I went to see the best therapists, because I, I knew them in and around the New York area. I went to Overeaters Anonymous. I went to um, see psychiatrists and took medication. I even wound up doing this 40,000-person study, which I'll tell you about in a couple of minutes, on the internet in the days when clicks were cheap to figure out the relationship between particular foods and particular emotional conflicts. Mm. And what I want to tell you about that whole journey is that it made me a deeper person. It helped me to forgive myself in a lot of ways. I don't regret having gone through it, but it didn't really help me with the binge eating. And we get thinner and then a bunch fatter and then I get thinner and a bunch fatter. I climbed up to about 280 pounds at one point. I don't know for sure I say about because I got mad at the scale and stopped weighing myself at 257. Mm -hmm. But I'm, I'm guessing it was about 280. And I, I hover between 200 and 210 now. Um, and my triglycerides were through the roof. Doctors were telling me yeah. I was going to die in my 30s if I didn't fix this. And um, you know, every male in my family had had a heart attack on my mom's side uh, you know, in, in their 40s, if not before. Yes. And I've always been a health-oriented person. I like to work out, and you know, my dad's really into exercise and tennis and everything. And, and so it bothered me. I, I was lucky that it bothered me. But I went about it by trying to love myself thin. The theory was, you know, if I can nurture my inner wounded child and fill the hole in that heart, then finally I wouldn't need the food. Okay. Well, eventually there were three things that caused me to flip the paradigm from nurturing my inner wounded child to thinking of myself more like an alpha wolf in a pack where I was being challenged for leadership. Um, it, it was almost like, you know, there's this biological urge and it wasn't really that different than my bladder saying I really had to pee. Like, like Phil, if I, if I really had to pee now, I wouldn't tell my bladder that I love you and, you know, it's, it's okay. We're going to be okay. And I know you have these needs. I, I would take control. I, I would say, okay, you know, those biological needs are going to have to subjugate themselves to what I'm choosing to do as a human being in society right now. And I'm going to finish this interview before I go pee. And I would just take control. Same thing with my, with my reproductive organs. If I see a really attractive woman on the street, I don't just go run up and kiss her. Right? I, Thank goodness. You have, yeah. <laughs> all involved. Like, you're getting a lot of trouble if you do that, right? Yes. Um, there's a certain way and a time that you have to approach. And I'm, I'm actually kind of shy, so I don't.
do that too well. Um, I, mm-hmm. I do better meeting people online. Um, <laughs> but, but the point is that there are these very strong biological urges that we live with comfortably day in and day out. Yes. And I started to say, well, why can't food be another one? There are a couple of other things that convinced me that I was going down the wrong path. One was because I didn't have kids myself and I never commuted. I had a lot of time for a second career. And I wound up doing millions of dollars of consulting for big food and big pharma, advertising research. And in some ways, I wish I never did it because I feel like I was on the wrong side of the war, you know, Mm -hmm. trying trying to help companies sell cookies and candies and cakes and stuff. (laughs) I feel like I was part of the problem back then and trying to make up for it now. Wow. But one of the things that I saw when I worked at those companies was that there's so much money being poured into paying these rocket scientists to engineer these hyperpalatable food-like substances, which are concentrations of starch and sugar and fat and oil and excitotoxins. And, And they're all designed to hit the bliss point in the reptilian brain, like I really pressed those evolutionary buttons, without giving us enough nutrition to feel satisfied. And the result is that our survival drives get hijacked and we want more and more and more. And so I'd seen a series of animal studies where, you know, their survival drive was hijacked. But what they did is they put these electrodes in the animal's pleasure center in the brain and they let the animal, they started out with rats and it progressed to higher mammals. They let them press a lever to self-stimulate and those rats press the button thousands of times per day to the exclusion of their survival needs. They, they became addicted to the lever. So nursing mother rats would abandon their pups mm. and go press the lever thousands of times a day. Um, male rats would crawl over painful electrical grids to get to the lever. Um, rats would ignore food to the point of starvation. Their survival drives had been stolen. And I don't think that industry is implanting electrodes in us while we sleep. But on the other hand, you could walk out of McDonald's and see a Burger King across the street. <laughs> and I, I don't mean to single them out. They're the only company that has these hyperpalatable things. You, you know, on, on every corner, there's some convenience store where you have all these bags and boxes and containers. And, and every time you are looking for love at the bottom of a bag or a box or a container, there's, some fat cat in a white suit with a mustache that's laughing all the way to the bank. Yeah. Yep. So, you know, I realized that none of this had anything to do with the fact that my mama didn't love me enough when I was a kid or that I was in a bad marriage or that I was lonely or brokenhearted or I had some hole in my heart. These were external forces that were aligned against me. Um, oh, and then the advertising industry, they send five to 7,000 messages about food to us every year over the internet and the airwaves. And maybe a half dozen of them are about eating more fruits and vegetables. So they're really good at tricking us into thinking we need these things to survive. Yeah. Um, I get a little excited, so I'm just going to calm down for one second. But there's one more thing I want to tell you about that. Uh, I remember this VP of a major food bar manufacturer who will remain nameless so I don't get sued. And he was leaving the company, and he pulled me aside, and he said, Glenn, I got to tell you, the um, most profitable thing we ever did here was to take the vitamins out of the bar. We took the vitamins out of the bar and we put the money into the packaging instead. We made them 
multicolored and vibrant in the packaging so that it looked healthy. Wow. And I said, so you're faking us out. And he kind of hangs his head and he goes, yep. Because a, multi, a shiny, multicolored packaging, it, it signals to the brain the same thing that a multicolored salad would signal to the brain. We evolved evolutionarily to recognize that diversity of color as signaling the availability of a diversity of nutrients. Yeah. And so here, they're actually taking nutrients out and making it less nutritious to make it look more nutritious instead. Mm. And that goes on all across the industry, and they're really good at it. And people think that advertising doesn't affect them, but it turns out it affects you more when you think it doesn't affect you because your sales resistance is down. Um, so I'll, I'll, it really is. So I'll try to wrap this up. Okay. So, so this all comes together for me in this moment when I'd asked my mom about the results of that big study that I did. And in that big study, I found that people who struggled with chocolate, they tended to be lonely or brokenhearted or depressed. And people who struggled with pretzels and chips, they tended to be stressed at work. And people who struggled with soft, chewy, like starchy things like bread and bagels and pizza, they tended to be stressed at home. And I, I called my mom up and I said, Mom, you know, I always start my binges with chocolate and I am kind of lonely and brokenhearted. I'm in a bad marriage, but what's, where did this get set up? How did that happen? And my mom says, I'm so sorry. And she gets this really shamed look in her face and this horrible look and this horrible sound in her voice. She says, I'm so sorry, Glenn, but when you were one year old in 1965, your dad was a captain in the army and they were talking about sending him to Vietnam and I was terrified. We were trying to get pregnant with your sister. I thought I'm going to have two small kids and I'm going to be an army widow and it would be a miserable life. Mm. And, at, right? and at the same time, my dad, your grandfather, he was, um, he was just getting out of prison and I didn't know he was guilty in doing these horrible things and I idolized him my whole life and I was, I was crushed. So half the time when you came to me, you know, running up for some love or some, you know, healthy food or just to play a little bit, I didn't have the wherewithal to give that to you because I was sitting and staring at the wall, feeling anxious and depressed myself. Mm. And so what I did is I kept a big bottle of Bosco chocolate syrup in a refrigerator on the floor. And I say, Glenn, go get your Bosco. And you'd go running over to the refrigerator I can still see you crawling over there now and you'd open it up and you'd unscrew the bottle and you'd suck on the cap and on the, on the top and you'd go into a chocolate sugar coma. And, you know, Phil, if, if this were a movie, then at that point my mom and I would have a big hug and a big cry and I would say, now I finally know why. And I would never have trouble with chocolate again. And we'd forgive each other and life would be perfect. But what actually happened after that was I wound up binging more on chocolate. Hmm. And, the, and th this was the pivotal moment for me. There, there was this crazy voice in my head, and, and I'm, I'm not schizophrenic, there was just you know, this thought in my head. Okay. Um, and it said, hey, Glenn, you know what? You're right. Our mama didn't love us enough, and she left a great big chocolate-sized hole in her heart. <laughs> and until we can get out of this marriage and find the love of our life, we're going to have to keep on binging on chocolate. Yippee, let's go get some more right now. 
And at that point, I realized that it was that voice of justification that was making all the trouble. And then I thought to myself, well, let's say the emotion is like fire. You could have a roaring fire in a well-contained fireplace, and it doesn't really matter what started that fire. If the fireplace is well-contained in the living room, that's an asset, not, not a liability. People gather around and they tell stories and they laugh and they cry and they make memories and they bond. Um, it becomes the center of hearth and home. The problem is, if there's something poking holes in the fireplace, then even one ash can get out and burn down the house. And it turned out that this voice of justification was poking holes in the fireplace. And at that point, I kind of put this together which what, with what I was learning about neurology and what I'd seen in the, in the food industry I was just telling you about. What I learned about neurology, by the way, is that the seed of food addiction is really the survival response, which is mostly in the reptilian brain, um, fight or flight, feast or famine. And that primitive part of the brain, this is key, it, it doesn't know love. It, when it looks at something in the environment, it says, do I eat it, do I mate with it, or do I kill it? It's, it's very primitive. It's, it's the lizard yeah. brain. Yeah. And so here I'm spending 30 years trying to love myself in, and the part of me that's responsible for the food addiction doesn't know love. Like, but love comes from the mammalian brain, which says, before I eat, mate, or kill that thing, do I, how, what impact is it going to have on my loved ones and my tribe? Um, and then it comes to a lesser extent from the, the neocortex, which says, wait, what impact is this going to have on who I am as a person in society and my long-term plans and my creativity and music and art and religion and everything that we think of as uniquely human? It comes from the higher levels of the brain, whether you believe in evolution or not, it, it could be that God just put it there, but these parts of the brain are there and this yeah. is how they work. Mm -hmm. And so that's when I came up with the alpha wolf approach. And this is the really embarrassing thing. This is how I got better. Um, really better for good, not immediately, but better for good. Okay. I said, I'm going to call my internal, I'm going to call my reptilian brain, my inner pig. I wish I picked a different metaphor because it's, Turned out to be trouble for me, but I called it my inner pig. Um, I decided that I was going to draw very clear lines in the sand so that I knew the difference between healthy and unhealthy eating behavior. So I would say, um, you know, for example, I'll never eat chocolate on a weekday again. And then I would say, if there's a voice in my head that suggests when I'm at Starbucks on a Wednesday that, I'll go ahead, Glenn, you can have that chocolate bar on the counter because you worked out hard enough and it's not going to, um, you're not going to gain any weight from it. You can always start again tomorrow. I would say, wait a minute, that's not me. That's my inner pig squealing for pig slop. I don't eat pig slop. I don't let farm animals tell me what to do. This, this, was, this was very private. I was not going to be public about this. Mm -hmm. And I started to keep a journal of all those crazy things that the pig would say. And then I would disempower it. I, I, would, um, I would say, well, you really can't start tomorrow just as easily as today because the principles of neuroplasticity says that if I crave chocolate today and I eat chocolate today, that association is going to be stronger. I'm actually digging a deeper hole for myself. You're either getting better or you're getting worse with your addictions. Yeah. And the only time you can eat healthy is now. Um, 
And so I would do things like that, and very slowly, it would wake me up and give me those extra microseconds at the moment of impulse to make the right decision if I wanted to. Yeah. And I started playing around with different rules, and I realized that nobody was telling me what to eat. I could make the rules myself. And what was the point of breaking rules that if I was consciously making these decisions and I wasn't powerless, this was a matter of free will, why, why make rules that I wasn't willing to comply with? And I just started to, I started to place a priority on creating rules that I was willing to live with that would make a slow and steady difference. And I got better. Um, you know, it took several years. It, I, it doesn't have to take years now. We've kind of perfected the process, but it took me several years figuring it out on my own. Um, I also got some ideas from Jack Trimpey at Rational Recovery, by the way, who does something similar with drugs and alcohol. And um, but it took me a few years to figure it out. And I kept the journal for all those years. And it was going to be, I was just going to be a quiet, thin person about all this until I was getting divorced. And I was a minor partner in a publishing company because you know, I had a lot of business dealings. Yeah. And the CEO called me and said, Glenn, we need to write a book because we need to do some marketing experiments and we need to prove to other authors that we're really good at what we do so we can attract better authors. Could you write a book this summer? <laughs> and I said, I've got this crazy, um, I've got this crazy journal that I kept for years about me versus my pig. And he says, I love it. I want to see it turn it into a book. <laughs> and so I, I write the book. It takes about a month because I had all these journal entries and it was mostly written by itself already. Just had oh. to edit it into a book format. I, I write the book and then I send it to him. He calls me back two weeks later all excited. He says, Glenn, donuts or pig slop? I don't eat donuts. Donuts, I don't let farm animals tell me what to do. And he proceeds to lose 100 pounds over the next two years. So wow. along the way, we launch the book. Um, and we were... You know, we both spent a lifetime in marketing, so we kind of sort of knew what we were doing, but we had no idea how well it was going to take off. And you know, we're edging up on a million readers, and um, you know, we've written seven more books about specialty topics, and we've got this coaching network. And now, sometimes I'm in a bookstore, and people don't really know my name, but they recognize me from video podcasts and things, and they <laughs> they come up to me and they point at me and they go. Pig guy, pig guy, which, which <laughs> is delightful nice. if you're on a first date. So that's my story. That's yeah. um, that's quite a story. Yeah, uh, that's very interesting. And thank you for opening up, being so vulnerable with all that too. Because, and I honor that. It's very, it's fascinating. I think a lot of people can relate to uh, all kinds of components of that. Maybe details might shift here and there, person to person, but human nature and human tendencies. Uh, are fairly consistent, <laughs> starting back with your mom and the anxiety and fear, and then uh, consigning herself to go get the chocolate and those things. I thought it was interesting. You said a chocolate-sized hole in your heart. <laughs> yeah, I didn't know chocolate was a size, but it's a very interesting phrase. A chocolate-sized hole because that's that's what you turn to among other things. Sounds like to compensate. Uh, that, that well, that thought encourages you to try to fill that hole and figure out what size, what shape it is. <laughs> but, um, yeah, what yeah. shape does the chocolate need to be to fill the so-called chocolate-sized hole? 
So yeah. we got, we got a lot of things to address then now. Uh, first of all, and I think chronologically, we talked, I mentioned the thing about addiction as a disease. Um, and before we jump into that too, I want to mention, I saw these quotes on your email, a life of discipline is better than a life of regret from Jim Rohn. Uh-huh. And also you can have anything in all caps. You can have anything you want. You just can't have everything you want. Um, Let's talk about all all those things, maybe through the lens of some of these quotes as well, but assuming maybe it fits like the chocolate sized hole might <laughs> um, as it as it pertains to just the general topic of addiction, I mean, would you say you had an addiction? It sounds like pretty straightforward that you, from what I'm hearing that you would I, yeah i I think addiction is a phenomenon um, and I believe that what a Addiction is a, a habitual action without the conscious insertion of control. Um, you know, our, our brains are set up to find object des- objects of desire in the most efficient way possible. And so when we are exposed to these supersized stimuli, we, we didn't have chocolate bars in the savannah. Like we didn't have, no. you know, there were no pretzels or chips or things hanging from trees. Um, and there's certainly not a lot of these exciting chemicals. Um, when we're exposed to that and we experience an unnatural level of pleasure, and I'm not saying you can't have some of that if you want to. I, I don't tell anybody what to eat. And I, I work with moderators and I work with abstainers. But, I, you know, I want you to know that there's a phenomenon that occurs which down-regulates your pleasure response. So if you eat a chocolate bar every day, your taste buds will down-regulate their sensitivity because of the intense stimulation such that fruits and vegetables will not taste as good to you anymore or even like natural lean whole meats if you're a meat-based person. Mm -hmm. I'm not, I'm a a plant-based person, but... but, um, you know, what nature has to offer in unprocessed foods will cease to taste as good to you because you're used to that excessive stimulation. And your brain is set up to go for that at all costs. Mm. And pathways will be myelinated to create action patterns that go on without the necessity of you modulating them consciously. And so the psychological experience of that is a the felt compulsion and fixation on the object of desire um that doesn't mean that it's a disease process which will get worse all on its own um you know if if someone has tuberculosis and you put them in a jail cell without treatment they'll continue to get worse if and without an inoculation and all that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. If, if somebody has uh, an alcohol addiction and you put them in a jail cell, they'll dry out and get better. They'll want the alcohol for a while, but if you keep them there for a year, they're going to you know, stop having the same cravings for the alcohol and the, the body will naturally heal itself. Um, so yeah. so there, there are... So, so I believe that there are brain changes associated with addiction. There is a phenomena where it feels like every bone in your body has to have that chocolate just to feel normal. It feels like you don't have a choice because the brain is being efficient and telling you don't worry about 
where you're going to get your pleasure from. This is where the good stuff is. And it becomes a very deep hole that you've dug yourself into. But it's not a disease. It's not a disease. And you, you can't actually even observe these brain changes. Um, you know, there's a set of studies where they compared brain images of uh, alcoholics versus people who weren't addicted. And you could see that the brain lit up you know, in response to pictures of alcohol and uh, in ways that the brains of normal people, it didn't. Hmm. But that, that doesn't, that's not evidence of it being a disease. If you show pictures of taxis to taxi drivers, their brains light up in the same way. If you show, uh, because what's happened is it's, it's a learning process by which the brain has determined, you know, it's like, where's my cheese? Wait, where's the good stuff? And, and it's kind of conditioned itself to, to, to work. It's a conditioning process, which can be deconditioned. Okay. Um, so it's, you dig these very deep grooves and it can be hard to climb out of and you f feel like you're focused on the object of, of desire to the exclusion of everything else, but you can climb out of it. Yeah. I don't think yeah. when you look at the research on the so-called treatment for the disease, um, the, like, like you look at the 12 step programs, for example, the, the only controlled research or semi-controlled research that's ever been done on that suggests that, the these programs are either at parity with doing nothing at all on a statistical basis or worse or slightly worse than that which means that the natural course of you know so-called addiction or alcoholism or food addiction um, seems to be just as well with the program or without the program hmm. which is not, not the it's not the mythology and the culture because doctors he doctors want to have something to give to patients like if you're you know if your husband comes in and he can't stop drinking and the doctors want to be able to say well there's this medication i can give you or i can send you to this program and yeah. they don't want to say look this you know your your husband's making the wrong choices and he's got a difficult mountain to climb and you know um but but really the fact that he's blowing up the family finances and crashing the car and vomiting on the carpet. Um, he's making some selfish choices and he needs, you know, he needs to uh, develop the determination and willingness to, um, to overcome this and, and to make different choices. And some people just shouldn't drink. Like some people shouldn't be trying to moderate it. So I, I think that we don't have a disease. I don't think food addiction is, is a disease. I think that what, food addicts have is a healthy appetite that's been corrupted by industry for a profit. That's what I think. Wow. That's, that's also fascinating. I, it's interesting in our, I think human nature, but I think we're so accustomed in, in this instant gratification world that we've made for ourselves. And let's be real. We made this uh, smartphones and drive throughs and all these. Oh yeah. Uh, it's, it's so easy to have a push button desire because so much of our lives are push button where, where we want a doctor to say, well, here's a pill and that'll cure whatever, whether it's addiction or coronavirus or <laughs> whatever, but things that involve the brain. And, and I get this message a lot because I talked to a lot of folks here on the podcast. A lot of it gets down to self-awareness and individual discipline and decision uh, to shift gears 
to a different path, essentially, and yeah. you know, reestablish these neural pathways, so to speak. Uh, talking about, we talk, interestingly, we talked about neuroplasticity last week uh, with with somebody. But um, yeah, I thought it's interesting the phrase you used. Every bone feels like it needs chocolate, or you could just fill in the blank: needs heroin, or you know, a hamburger, or whatever. Just hand over the chocolate, and nobody gets hurt. Yeah, <laughs> and it's kind of like the same thing. I've people do crazy things with with addictions. I, I had someone try to break into a home I lived in, uh, trying to apparently get money to feed an addiction. Um, it, it's such a strong driving force in the brain function that then extends out throughout the body that now I'm going to go try to break into a house. I've known people who've robbed people. Uh, who, Thankfully, I, I have friends who are in that boat and they've now they've turned their lives around and living a normal life. But uh, in those in those realms, it's very very dangerous. Someone could shoot you, you know that, that kind of thing. Um, I, I don't know it, because, because it's a survival food. drive. Yes, because pe- people feel like it's a matter of life and death. I think I th- yeah, I think it's uh, thankfully for me, and this isn't to toot my horn. I've never, uh, at least when it comes to food and drugs and stuff like that, I've I've never, but I've watched it, and I've always hated. Uh, I grew up with music as a musician, so I watched people with cigarettes and drinking and some drugs and. Uh, sitting in garages full of cigarette smoke and stuff because that's all these different kinds of things that people had to turn to to feel what you call quote-unquote normal uh, or okay it's it's a dependency of some sort or we might add the qualifier a reversible dependency it's a reversible dependency yeah yeah it's a reversible dependency and I, I go ahead go on up no you go ahead well, I, I, why don't you finish? Because I want to talk a little bit more about the industry too, but finish this thought on, on addiction. <laughs> well, um, it, it's a reversible dependency. And I think it's really important that people recognize that they are not just overeating. Cause that's the area where I focus on the most. They're not just mm-hmm. overeating to comfort themselves or to compensate for the emotional pain that they're in. Um, if you believe that, then your pig will run circles around you. You can call it a food monster if you don't like to call it a pig. Mm-hmm. Um, you, but your, your pig will run circles around you and say, oh, we're hurting so much and we were so traumatized and um, you know, we have so much pain and we simply can't get through this without a little pig slop. We, we have to numb out. But the truth is, you know, when you, when you go to the dentist and you have to get a shot before your teeth are worked on, the dentist doesn't say, I'm sorry, I'm out of Novocaine, can I inject you with some chocolate? Um, (laughs) There's something going on beyond numbing out when you're going for these foods. And I think people are getting high with foods. I, I think there's an unnatural level of stimulation in that, yes, it's true that the nervous system has difficulty conducting the emotions when the digestive system is overloaded. And so there is an analgesic impact on the emotions of excess food. But it's also true that, you know, because there wasn't a chocolate bar in the Savannah when we eat chocolate and we have the theobramine and caffeine and vanillin and all the other, you know, stimulants and excitatory chemicals in there and the fat and the sugar Mm -hmm. that, we're having a neurological experience and a physiological experience that's akin to getting high. It's not that different 
to getting high. So I think that if people will switch their paradigms and tell themselves that I'm getting high with food, my pig wants to get high with food, most people don't want to think of themselves like a drug addict. And I find that that sometimes put, puts the initial, um, initial lock on the pig's cage where people can move away from emotional eating and begin to um, you know, think twice and figure out an, an alternative solution. Yeah. Well, I mean, it seems to me a lot of what we do as humans, uh, and you can maybe vouch for this as a psychologist and so on too, is that uh, it's associations. Everything in our minds is associations. I see this fabric or this food or this, like you talked about the packaging, these colors, and we associate certain things. Some of it's natural instinctual things and some of it's uh, choice. I, I remember Tony Robbins, this is one of my favorite quotes. He said, what we associate to pleasure and what you associate to pain will determine your destiny. Mm. And so there's like a belief window that we create for ourselves of how we look at the world. Just like someone could say, Oh, running means my life will suck. <laughs> if I go and someone else will say that means my life will be longer and I'll have a healthy heart or all, all these other various things. And it's all about how we associate and the belief window with which we look we could all be looking at the same thing and be thinking completely different <laughs> things about it, right? From you, you, food you, to sex to everything else, right? You can change your state. You can change your mind state about it, yeah. Yeah. I, uh, talk to me a little bit about this industry because I know, uh, and I know we don't have all the time in the world. This is such a fascinating topic. I listened to an audio book called uh, Fast Food Genocide, which you may have seen, heard. Mm, I haven't uh, read that. No, I will. It's very interesting also from a guy who did all this consulting <laughs> for these big companies, uh, even more so, I'm sure. But as you started to talk about some of that, I find it really interesting. Um, all these, you know, Food Inc. and all these little documentaries out there about this stuff. Uh, and, and yet we're still not awakened, you know, and full transparency. I delivered uh, Grubhub for a while like delivering food to people. And I watched people <laughs> when I was doing that, people quietly uh, kind of uh, order their wings, you know, or pizzas galore. And it's like, there's nobody else around. It's just interesting how people are with food. So I, I saw it from a different angle when I was doing that sometime back. But you, That's a special window into how people act when they're self-sabotaging, right? Yeah. Especially what other people don't see. But tell, talk to me about the industry. Like, how did you get into that? And, and what kind of, uh, I mean, I don't know that we want to attribute some sort of evil to this, but when, when money's involved, there can be some version of what we might call evil also at the table, <laughs> so to speak. You know, I, I, I don't know that I would attribute evil. Maybe at the highest levels. If you read a book called Sugar, Salt, and Fat, there are some conversations in there that seem like they're almost evil. But for the most part, the people that I work with were good people and they saw themselves as, you know, developing fun products for people to party with. And it was a part of healthy memories in childhood. And, um, you know, and our, our culture seems to have a tacit agreement to slowly kill ourselves with food st starting in childhood. We, we support, you know, things in moderation that don't belong in the body. Um, but the market wants these things. You know, people like good news about their bad habits. If you, if you make potato chips with avocado oil, people will overlook the fact that they're still fried in a way that creates uh, acrylamides and 
what they're called, uh, heterocyclic amines and you know, things that are very clearly carcinogenic, yes. but it's got avocado oil, right? Yeah. And they'll ignore the fact that there's hardly any nutrition or that the oil, it's, oil itself has been carcinogenized and um, people want good news about their bad habits. And <laughs> uh, I think it was Winston Churchill that said, capitalism is the worst form of government except for all the others. Uh, and there, there are some really big downsides to capitalism. It, it doesn't protect the market from itself. Yeah. It, it develops the things that people really want. And the market is crying out for you to say, tell me it's okay to have a whole chocolate bar. Tell me it's okay to have a whole bag of chips or, you know, or a whole pizza. Find some way to make that okay. And it's really not okay. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's, it's really not okay, but the market wants. And so... You know, most of these people are really smart people that are doing their jobs and they feel like they're serving a good role in society. And, and um, you know, it's hard not to sell to the market what the market wants. So, <laughs> so I, I think that's a fundamental problem we have. And I think the only way to address it is with regulation. I don't think we can sue the companies for doing what they're doing, which, you know, their capitalism is based on the profit motive. And yeah. in a competitive marketplace, if you know, if one company is doing it, another one doesn't, then they're, they're sunk. So yeah. I, I, I think we have to address this with legislation, not with, um, not by vilifying the companies. Perhaps. Um, everything's about human behavior, uh, a lot of which starts in the home, as in your case, uh, with eating and stuff. I mean, this is where we learn to talk and walk and uh, just general habits towards just day-to-day life activities. Uh, but yeah, uh, societal kind of norms and behaviors really do start there. And so we parents need to be a little more or a lot more, let's say, uh, <laughs> responsible oh, with oh, our yeah. kids too. Like, oh, the kid wants the Doritos. Um, like with my kids, I let them eat and people may or may not object and that's okay. I'm just sharing some things, but my kids like to eat like a lot of kids, pizza and chips and stuff. And I let them eat some of those things, but I also regulate it with, you're going to also have a salad and you're going to, ha- we're going to cut up an apple or, you know, things like yeah. that as well. Yeah. And because I know, you know, fast food genocide, and of course I'm sure your book and lots of others uh, teach the realities of these things and, and, and then balancing life where we're not just sitting in front of a video game too, where oh, we're also exercising it's just there's something to be said for balance because the universe i think screams that to us the universe demands balance we need to demand it of ourselves uh not not like binging is obviously an imbalance <laughs> to a large extent um there's so much i could say i i want to touch real quick on this phrase you i wrote it down when we were talking you said hyper palatable food like substances i thought well that's a very 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 interesting term <laughs> hyper palatable food like substances well well i i I kind of constructed that term. I've, I've heard pieces and parts of it in other places. I, I constructed it to get people's attention, to make them recognizing that they're, they're being unnaturally stimulated and on the, you know, in the pleasure centers of the brain and the, and the taste buds. Mm-hmm. Um, that what they're eating is not really food. It's, um, it's something that's food-like and designed to trick them into thinking that it's food. Um, and that they're putting, they're putting substances into their body. They're not 
they're not really neutrifying themselves. Yes. Uh, I, I, I was, I'm trying to, I guess I'm trying to break people's delusion about, you know, um, an avocado oil infused potato chip is a good thing to have. I'm, I'm I think it, I, I would defend people's right to have that, by the way. I think we fought wars for our freedom in this country. And I think if people want to, you know, I think everybody makes choices in the continuum of living fast and dying young to living slow and, you know, enjoying the ride. Um, and I think that that's a personal choice and a personal liberty. So I, I would defend your right to do that if you want to in, in moderation. Um, but I think that where people really get into trouble is when they fool themselves into thinking that it's good for them or even okay for them. Um, you know, if, if it's kind of like some people want to smoke a cigarette once in a while, but don't, don't have any illusions that that's good for you. Right? So that, that's where I came up with Honesty. that sentence. Yeah. 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 I, th I think you're absolutely right. Uh, being honest with ourselves and then responsible also, you know, as parents, especially as adults, but, course that like in your case you told the story and this went back to some simple but profound moments in your family's history your very early years that uh, set patterns you know we read in all kinds of places including the bible you know raise up a child in the way he should go and when he's old he will not depart from it and such is the case with uh like one of my friends who had some addictive uh, tendencies. Now, some of that's genetic, I think, too, because his father had a lot of this with alcohol, cigarettes, and drugs. And uh, but so there, there's all these little factors, but we can't undermine the uh, individual responsibility factor, that, uh, which which is self awareness, which is uh, being, you know, to use Stephen Covey term, proactive in our decision making. Like you talked about this thing that, that conjured that idea in my mind about harnessing the moment between seeing and wanting something and, and be able, being able to make a decision and hopefully the more responsible, wise decision for the long term. <laughs> As for yeah. Whether it's buying a Twinkie or, or eating a hot dog or whatever it is. Not that any of those things are inherently wrong. It's just like finding the balance. Uh, anyway, what did you want to say? I'm sorry. Well, I wanted to say that I think that it's important. Now it left my mind. Oh. <laughs> I'm sorry. Oh, it was you, you, you were talking about responsibility. I'm sorry. I lost it. I'm no, sorry. It's, it's fine. This happens. It happens to me all day, yeah. every day. Uh, yeah. It's uh, to me, it's kind of like we look at this, this macro and micro of our lives. I like to think in those terms a lot of times about the micro makes up the macro. Like you've seen these paintings, I'm sure where it's like a bunch of dots that make up a big, large painting. Yes. And I can, um, I can, I can never see the painting inside. I can never see the image I'm supposed to see. It drives me crazy. <laughs> well, no, I'm not even talking about those. Those are cool too. I'm, I'm, I mean, literal paintings just as a work of art that have been done just instead of brush strokes, they use dots and all these little dots add up to make, you know, the grass on the ground or the clouds in the sky, but instead of brush strokes to really kind of just paint a, a figure, it's all these dots. And I just think about life that way. All these little dots that all, all the, whatever you mentioned, pop tarts earlier that you got at seven 11 uh, was just a dot each time, but it added oh, yes. up to a, a whole big painting for your now, life. Now I remember what I wanted to say. Good. Um, I, Cause I thought you were making a really important about 
important point about let's talk about obesity, for example, being multi-determined that there's a multitude of factors. Yeah. Um, I believe that the concordance rate between parental obesity and child obesity is about 60%. Wow. Uh, what, what that means though, um, if you ask a statistician, you're supposed to square that to figure out the percent of variance accounted for. So if you know that the concordance rate, I might be off base here, but I think I'm right. If you know that the concordance rate is 60%, mm-hmm. that means that about 36%, 60% squared of the predictive ability. So if you know your mom was fat, what's the likelihood that you're going to live a life of obesity? It would be about 36%, not 60%. That's important because it says that about two-thirds of it is under your control. So maybe you it's like being dealt a bad hand in poker. Well, I'd rather be dealt a good hand than a bad hand, but two-thirds of the outcome has to do with my skill as a poker player. And two-thirds of the outcome seems to have to do with the environment you choose to live in and the habits you choose to embrace and the diet you follow and the way that you think about food. And so, you know, um, you know, I was brought up in a family of obesity and my, um, I have a lot of clients that were brought up in families of, of obesity who have a tendency to gain weight more easily. I mean, I get angry at my friend Odine from college who, <laughs> uh, could eat whatever the heck she wanted to all day long, and she really did, and she was thin as a rail. Uh, I'm just not one of those people. I'm not blessed with those genes. Most but, of us aren't. But I still played a good game, you know, and I, I, I lost it for a while, but I figured it out, and, you know, now I'm, I'm a healthy, thin person for the most part. Good. So well, I, I just think it's important that people don't think that they're doomed because of their genetics because you're not. No, and there's there's always, and my message is always both to myself and the world through the podcast and however else there is always hope no matter what cards you've been dealt going back to your analogy uh no matter what choices you know right or wrong may have been made in your life there is there's absolutely always hope it's kind of like to me also uh, seeing it through the lens of each day being a new opportunity too like we wake up each day hopefully (laughs) and uh and that daily awakening can take place in a figurative sense, too, of awakening to what we are and really being able to look ourselves in the mirror, so to speak, uh, of, and not beat ourselves up. Just this is who I am. This is wh- what I've come from, good and bad, what I've overcome and, and what I'm still challenged with. And just kind of owning it, not, not letting ourselves get down by it, but owning it and then doing our best. Like you talked about your process of 30 plus years uh, and then coming to some realizations towards the end of some of the, the that chapter of your journey that you step by step, it was still some, <laughs> recently we talked about the the book Baby Steps from What About Bob with somebody. Oh, I love that movie. Yeah. Great, great movie. But also interesting point, <laughs> baby steps that you didn't just from one day to the next become a different person. Transformation, even for the butterfly, the caterpillar is a gradual process, but it happens. We've just got to let it unfold and do it right and push the trajectory. Mm-hmm. So there's always hope, people. Go ahead. Let's get some final thoughts. I know you got to run here. I'd love to chat with you all day, but go ahead. What are your final thoughts here, Glenn? <laughs> well, I, I, um, people, I, I want to go back to the quotes that you mentioned, and then I, I'd like to tell people where they can get a free copy of the book, if that's okay. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, my favorite quote is, a life of discipline is better than a life of regret. 
by Jim Rohn because yeah. um, I find that freedom sits on top of discipline. People are frightened about making these rules and you don't have to make them permanent, by the way. You can experiment with them and change them afterwards. We'll get into that at a different time. But, um, you know, I, 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 I too am a musician and I used to play jazz fusion music and it was, I was only able to express my soul because I spent so much time practicing the scales beforehand. And I knew the structure of the music. I knew exactly where I was. Yeah. And if I, if I got an impulse to express myself, I could move away from that structure. But the discipline always let me get back to something that would be perceived as music as opposed to just random noise. Um, the car you drive only turns the wheel 30 degrees, turns your tires 30 degrees to the right when you turn your wheel 30 degrees to the right because of the discipline of the engineers that put it together. Mm -hmm. If it wasn't for that discipline, you wouldn't be able to have a greatly enhanced radius of locomotion to get around town um, because the cars wouldn't work. So, you know, Jim Rohn used to say, when you're not sure what to do in life, adopt a new discipline. I, I find the same thing. And what I want to leave people with is if you try choose one simple rule, I always put my fork down between bites. I never watch never eat in front of a TV screen. I'll never go back for seconds again. <laughs> Something that just is very simple, but could turn the ship around and you can start to listen for your pig to try to get you to break it. You, you'll find that you've got a power and actually a freedom that you didn't have before you had that role. So that's what I wanted to tell you. I, I wanted to, if it's okay, tell people to go to neverbingeagain.com and click the big red button to get a free copy of the book in Kindle Nook or PDF format. There are also paid versions in Audible and paperback. Um, and when you do that and you sign up for the reader bonuses, you'll also get um, food plan starter templates, copies of rules that might work for whatever dietary philosophy you happen to be following, low carb, high carb, you know, vegan, carnivorous, point counting, calorie counting, it's all there. And because this is a harsh thing to talk about in the abstract, I recorded a bunch of full-length coaching sessions. This is all free. So you can hear how this philosophy transforms people from feeling powerless and hopeless and depressed about their food situation to being enthusiastic and empowered and excited in just one session. So neverbingeagain.com, click the big red button. Cool. Yeah, you can't miss the big red button. So look for that. And of course, you've got your exhaustive coaching program that you do. Uh, you've got some other books out. You did an autobiography on food and nighttime eating as well, uh, separate items. Uh, I'd love to talk more about all that, but we'll uh, maybe we'll do a sequel down the road. <laughs> Different time. Absolutely. Thank yeah. you, Phil. Yeah, thank you. And uh, again, to our audience, uh, empower yourself, empower the world around you. Thanks so much for listening to Empower Humans. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review this podcast. For more great content and to stay up to date, visit EmpowerHumans.com. We'll catch you next time.